In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. My name is Paul McCown. I was born and bred in the Diana City, and my other half is Brazilian. My child's half Brazilian. I think there's a lot of misinformation being spread across the the Brazilian community and. Well, there's a lot in the, the Deliveroo who are fighting for their, their rights around security as work, health and safety. There's another aspect who are instigating discrimination against travellers and people from the inner city community. There's another number of media and articles and so, on social media platforms and they're instigating to basically that this is the inner city community, this is the knackers that are doing this and they, that they should be basically wiped out. And this isn't just people doing comments, this is respected people like journalists, people who are teaching English to Brazilian students, Irish people, who are basically uttering people from the inner city to say we're knackers, we're, we're, we're less than scum. It's having a knock-on effect. Brazilian students are coming over here and before they come, in their package, before they come to study English, there's a page or two warning them about what the knacker people are, what, where they live, they're all on social welfare. I've been to Brazil eight times and the first time I went with my partner, I was terrified that basically, you know, I heard all about the crime and when you type in on YouTube, you see basically disproportionately black Brazilians in Brazil and they're, they're put up, they're, they're stereotyped by Brazilian society and they're made out that when they're robbing, so there's this anger and there's this racism against them. And it's, it's almost the same when you see it with the Brazilian community here, how they're putting up videos of any type of ISIL, any type of incident where someone is robbed or a bike is being robbed. It's look the knackers. And they use the code word in Portuguese, nanas, in Portuguese as well, they're saying. And Brazilians are, you know, a lot of my friends are caught up in fear and they think, like, this is what's going on in the inner city. And then they're circulating videos of the crime war going on as well outside that with the Hutch and the Kinahans as well and it's it, it's leading to stereotypes and you have also broader Irish society who are warning them not to mix with us as well and it's having a detrimental effect even on my my son and me, me wife as well my wife lives in the flats with me kid he's half Brazilian he mixed with all the inner city community he speaks Portuguese but he's grown up with a lot of them from there and I must say that like when people are fighting for their rights to be just singling out the traveller community or people from the inner city and calling them knackers, that's not no way to go about it. And when people are doing that, they need to think of the ramifications that actually has for people who live in the area and mix in both communities. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever asked yourself, am I living a sustainable lifestyle? Well, on Down to Earth this week, Cara Gustenberg put that question to writer and comedian Colin Morrigan. Take a listen to this. Yeah, I've done little things. And if, and also just to pick up on the word success, like I really think we have to train ourselves to try and fail and not beat ourselves up if we're not as good as we could be and just do a bit. So uh, the little things, we did uh, cloth nappies for, we'll say, 60 or 70 percent of the time with the small with the smallers. And it's a bit of work. You are more intimately aware of poo you have to do more dealing with poo than you would have with the like you know obviously with disposable nappies and nappy changing you're not it's not like you can't avoid the poo but you kind of tend to do a little wipe then just fold it all away tuck it into a bag and it's gone it's gone whereas with with uh, cloth nappies you very much you're aware right to the end and you may have to wash them again because it didn't quite work the first time and all of that um but what what 
got us into that. And it was my wife kind of did the research and all that kind of thing is the waste. Like it's just watching the bin lorry, the black bin used black bin used to be emptied at half, like a few times a year in our house before children arrived. And then when the nappies first came, you'd see the black bin, you'd see the, the machine almost straining to lift the bin. And it just, again, going back to what I was saying about waste, it just feels so wrong that you make a thing and use it once and throw it away. And it's just, and then it, it doesn't even go back to the, to the soil. Like it, even the biodegradable part of it gets tucked away inside in a non-biodegradable bit. And it just feels wrong. So um, we bought, we've got cloth nappy. So we went, we did that. And up until the children became a little too big. And let's not get into detail about volumes of poo. But um, so we did a bit, you know what I mean? Reduced, you know, eliminated, you know, a thousand nappies from the, the landfill. Uh, smaller scale tea bags to loose tea sounds like nothing <laughs> but it requires a small bit of effort to strain the tea buy a strainer you make better tea and then suddenly you're just like using less and I don't care if, if plastic if uh, the tea bags are biodegradable most of them aren't still uh, they still have to be made somewhere and all of that requires a bit of work so that's just just tiny stuff I started driving whenever we get to drive again, trying to drive slower. I read somewhere that if you drive at 100 instead of 120, like you reduce wind drag like exponentially. So therefore you get more miles to the gallon because I'm driving a diesel car. Hip, hypocrite, hypocrite alert, diesel car, but it's an old one. So I'm going to drive it into the ground and then the next one will be electric. But in in within my hypocrisy, doing that tiny thing um, and... Also, more relaxed driving more slowly. It's very hard to give up driving at 120 in Ireland, though, because we we fought for ages to get those motorways. And so it seems like a waste to not use them to the fullest extent. What an interesting guy, Colm O'Regan, from Down to Earth with Caro Gustenberg. And of course, you can catch Cara every Saturday evening from eight till nine. Is there any technical reason? Is there anything being blocked? Any reason why the water doesn't drain away? Well, I suppose... it was draining into a swally hole, and um, I just give you my own personal opinion. Back in the early 2000s, Loch Fintana used to go dry, and you could walk across it. And my opinion is that swally hole has blocked since early 2000s. Um, a road could have been built, or a shed could have been built over the swally hole somewhere a mile away. You don't know. Um, could be blocked just on the surface. We don't know, but. Um, since then, it's been going up two foot, down a foot, up two foot, down a foot for the last 20 years, and it's causing havoc now. It's just at a stage where it's starting to flood houses, farmyards, perfectly good farmland. And another thing as well, in order for Loughrinsona to find an overflow point, it will rise another 15 foot. So you can imagine what more is going to wash out of itself. So at the moment, you've got the pumps to keep at the, the flooding of your home at bay. Um, and yourself and your mother, I mean, does it require constant vigilance from you guys to know whether maybe the time has come to get out of the house? Well, we were told by the council the other day there now that they are, don't know what's going to happen in the next while and that, that we're, they were going looking into, that they were going inquiring about houses first. And that was, it was, it was hard to hear, so it was now, to be honest, but... Um, no, we're not going to leave the house annals because fortunately we have an upstairs annals and the mother said herself she'll bring the kettle upstairs. 
I can have my whole farmyard here and everything. I can't leave it, so I can't. Like they said, they have a, they're going to inquire about a house in Roscommon Town, which is 10 miles away. We but that's not it. on as far as you're concerned. No. Ha- no. What about your neighbours? Have any of them had to up sticks? Um, well, shockingly, they did. Now I have, we say the house that was being pumped around in 2016, now that's under, I say there's a foot of water inside the floor of the house now, and they actually moved out last February now because um, the water was getting high as well last February and was, and just for, for their own mental uh, mental sake, they just got they moved out. They couldn't suffer it any longer. I have neighbours that both of them are in their 80s next door to us. And if you seen one on Monday, it was like a removal of a funeral with all the vans around and people helping to take the stuff out of the house, just in case. Now, I didn't get into the house, but it was horrible yeah. to watch it. All right, because once water gets into a house, everything's destroyed, carpets, oh, soft furnishings, yeah, furniture, everything's yeah, destroyed. Everything. So they're, they're Because being... we'll be, um, shortly enough, i say probably come the weekend, now we'll be, we'll be taking the furniture out of downstairs and we'll be taking, well, I suppose anything small can be brought upstairs, and within the suppose just leave the bare minimum, and then just be prepared for the worst, you know. Because it could happen, you know. You don't know what, you don't know what weather's going to come now. Like, we're, we're solely depending on how good or bad the weather is and, and the diesel pump. Heartbreaking stuff there from Roscommon farmer Porig Beatty from the Pat Kenny Show. I'll sulk him across but I can honestly say I don't know if we'll pay a fine or not. <laughs> Take the consequences of it because I don't think I don't think that we should be fined for that. So if you were fined would you pay it? No I wouldn't pay it. Let's be quite honest with you I wouldn't pay it. I'm originally from Lefford I'm in Lo- now and uh you know, it's a cross-border thing. It's happening on a daily basis up here. And it's myself, in my own case, I'm looking after my own 84-year-old aunt in Lufford. So how many times would you cross the border a day? At least twice. At least twice. I think about being fined. <laughs> I can't see how it's going to work. Like, you know, being honest with you, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, like, it's like speeding fines in the, in the south from northern drivers. They'll, they'll take your details, but they won't actually issue the fines. I don't know. It's going to be enforceable. Yeah, well, will it work? 53106 is the number if you want to uh, share your view with us here on the News Talk text line this afternoon. William is on the line, though, in County Down. Well, William, what do you think? Will it work? Um, I think it probably will. I, I have mixed feelings about it myself. Uh, I think, you know, if, if you think in terms of the pandemic on both sides of the border with the number of people who have passed away, number of people who are in hospital, you know, it really makes sense that we cut down as much travel as possible. And indeed, people have been told within Northern Ireland they're not meant to travel anyway, whether they go across the border or not. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen my 90-year-old mother since now before Christmas. We can't go to get seeing our grandchildren freely when we wish to. So therefore, to travel across the border for no reason, it doesn't really make any sense. It does feel strange, however, that you know we, we are always encouraged to think that the border is open. And within this past two weeks now, we've had, we've had the EU Commission making a mess of or possibly making a mess of uh, trade across the border. And now, now we've had this as well. I think it will probably put a number of people off. And I would imagine that there may be some people who are still maybe thinking of using you know, the international airport here, or the airport in Belfast, and then maybe travelling down south. I don't know. Is so it I a, think it probably will work, yeah. Is it a border by another name, William? Not really, no. I think people people need to be careful the language they use on this. Mm. It's something that I think in the context of of COVID-19, we probably do need to do. 
and in another few weeks it'll be left out and gone and knowing us in this country will have moved on to something else by then I would have thought. The, um, the 100 euro fine, the charge, and I should, should say too, actually, for people in the south um, travelling to the north for non-essential reasons, they'll obviously run the risk then as well of the on-the-spot fine that's been in place for the past, mm. what, four or five weeks? Yeah. Um, because you can't travel from further than five kilometres from your home without an essential reason mm. on, on this site. Will the fine be paid, though? Like, it was interesting to hear our own reporter there. You probably heard that clip before we, we, we came to you. Um, he spoke to people in the border regions today and talking about maybe, if you like, northerners not paying that fine. I mean, do you think, will will that be the case? I think you'll always get people who say that. Somebody who lives in in the border region, and I heard somebody talking about their 84-year-old aunt in Lefford. I mean, surely that is an essential thing to go over and actually look after somebody. Mm -hmm. I know I have a a work colleague who has a nephew who lives in Dublin who's extremely unwell at the minute. And she has to go down. I would have thought the guards would use their common sense. That is essential. But if, if somebody else is fined, I mean, it's, not, it's an on-the-spot fine. You'll, you'll, ha- you'll actually have to pay it. And if not, I see the guards are saying that they'll issue with a summons. So, yes, I, I think it probably will work if, if they follow through on it. Yeah. Sean in East Donegal has got in touch to say, what are called local bubbles should be introduced and enforced. Stopping people who are resident in Straban going into Lifford is beyond ridiculous. Mm-hmm. As Straban and Lifford are basically the same town, simply divided by the River Foyle. Niall says, I don't think extending the COVID fines to Northern Ireland residents are strictly aimed at people in Donegal going down the road. I live in Roscommon. I have a guard the checkpoint outside my door a few times a week and there's frequent traffic coming from south from Northern Ireland breezing through the town it's a bit strange that people on one side of the border can do as they like but people in the south would get fined and a telling off Mike in Inishone also says people travelling cross border can carry Covid even if they're working people working in hospitals for example are a high risk anybody working in cross border both ways should be tested all this should have been done nine months ago the government um, are a bit slow on this Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live on Monday, mentalist Keith Barry discussed the highs and lows of lockdown on News Talk Breakfast. Good morning, Kira. Yeah, um, I think, you know, obviously COVID is affecting different people in different ways. And, and for me, you know, I, I kind of just lost my self, uh, sense of purpose for a moment. You know, I was on stage in the Olympia Theatre March 10th last year playing to a packed house. And then the next morning, the last two dates of my tour were obviously cancelled. Um, and then I was sitting at home and I suppose for the first week it was grand like everybody else. It was a little bit of a holiday. But after that, yeah, I just found myself for the first time ever, I suppose, being cranky and anxious. And I'm not that kind of person. So it was really strange and surreal to have the, the rug pulled from underneath you like that and just go into the unknown and not know when we're going to come out of it. And I suppose we still don't know when we're coming out of it yes. as, as entertainers. And like, I really feel for the jobbing entertainers, the people who you know are literally uh, hand to mouth, as they say, and you know perform at weddings and they perform in the pub and so on. And you know none of us know when we're coming back, you know. And obviously, I mean, I must have hit you hard and I, and I, I, I totally get what you're saying about a lack of a sense of purpose, but you managed to pick yourself up and, and turn the negative into a positive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I just felt, I suppose, really low and really down for about six weeks and, uh, you know, no different than anybody else. 
but for me, you know, I am a, a mind coach and, a, and an executive coach, you know, aside from being an entertainer. So I, I had to kind of practice what I preach and use the techniques that I use in other people on myself. So I had to reframe, pivot and, and just go online. Um, so I did that. And again, going into the unknown, not really knowing whether it would work or not. So I kind of worked about 16 to 18 hours a day for two or three months, figuring all that, of that out. And then, yeah, luckily, um, you know, touch wood it all worked out and i ended up you know performing online pretty much every single day for the last three months of last year for you know high-end corporations and companies for employee engagement motivational keynotes entertainment um and i thought it had quietened down this year but luckily it actually hasn't so it's getting busier and busier so yeah it actually worked out pretty okay so, now, it doesn't so replace live entertainment but look in the meantime it's a, it's a great alternative you know and that is a brilliant message of hope for people that you adapted, you changed, you, you you moved, you built a little online studio and were able to work from home and do all the things. You, you had to pivot, I suppose, into something else, which I think does give people great, great hope. And, and going forward, do you think you'll ever work the same way again? I think I will, yeah. I mean, I, again, we don't know when that can happen. I think that's a, a big problem for not just the entertainment industry, but people in general is that, we, you know, even though there's a plan with the vaccine and so on, um, and we hear about this herd immunity, uh, there's been no real talk about, you know, when certain businesses are, are getting back. I, I think some businesses have a sense of when they're coming back, but there's a lot of people out there in the unknown. And I suppose what I would say to them is you have to just kind of reframe in your mind where you're at at this moment in time. So for me, the reframing came from just examining my life previously and, and uh, accepting that I actually had had a lot worse times in my past than you know COVID you know I've been through massive car accidents uh, where I was badly injured and you know my grandfather was killed in a botched robbery and so on and I had to just put all of that in perspective uh, reframe and then just figure out a way and I think just hope that's what people need right now and I also think they need to feel empathy from people and I have great empathy for all of the people out there but especially entertainers and the people in the industry Keith Barry from News Talk Breakfast in case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Does it wear you down, David? Does it wear you down? Do you think you're, to yourself, you know what, this is more hassle than it's worth? Oh, 100%. Um, there's been times I played games where, you know, they've, you know, and you, you score and then you're onto the social media person at the club or, you know, the media officer and you're like, can you get me photos off the photographer? You get the photos, you post them and everyone's like, oh, Dave, you're the best. You know, you're the best midfielder to ever play for Hull, whoever it was, Hull, Sunderland, Coventry, Reading, whatever. And when you lose, on the flip side of that, the abuse. And the thing that crept in to me in my early, like early 20s was I started to read those comments and start going, like, obviously I can't use some of the derogatory terms that were used. Um, but like I, st- I used to read them and kind of go, maybe he's right. Maybe I am awful. Maybe I should, you know, not play or you start to, you know, second guess yourself and you start to doubt yourself and whatever. Um, it was only as I kind of got older and kind of like matured a bit more that I was kind of thinking like I had a, a, the example around the time the kind of penny dropped with me was I played a game um, with Hull when I just signed. And I remember my dad had flown over to the game and after the game, um, I thought I played well. Um, came into the change room, Steve Bruce ranted and raved about my performance, sat down with me and blah, blah, blah. And I remember I went out after, I used to always go out and, you know, spend 10, 15 minutes with my dad, uh, chit-chatting about the game, we'd run over everything. And my dad battered me for my performance. 
And he said, you know, you could have done this, you could have done that, you could have done more, you should have been in the box here, you should have done this, you should have stopped that pass, you should have stopped that cross. And he went over everything. And it was a real wake-up call for the, for the pair of us in the sense that my, my father, someone who I respect, trust, and no doubt he'll see this, but someone whose opinion I would really value, didn't actually matter because at the end of the day, my manager was really happy with my performance and he was going to pick me again next week regardless of what anyone thought. And then I started to think like my own father's opinion doesn't matter as much as the manager's. And then I started to realize like these 16, 17, 18 year olds who were attacking me, it doesn't really, it doesn't really, you know, bother me now because I was like, as long as my manager is happy, then I don't really, everyone else is irrelevant in my mind. Um, And then like me, my dad then spoke about it over a pint and, we were chatting about it and I said, but you're, you're coming to the game to watch me. Like my dad was coming to pick every single positive and negative. I said, whereas the manager's watching a collective group. Like, of course, look, my dad wanted to, you know, wanted me to push on and do better and be successful. But I said, you're nitpicking at every small detail. I said, you're your own manager. You know what I mean? He's been manager of Kerry, Wexford, Cork, senior hurlers. I said, do you nitpick on one person or do you you look at the collective group of, you know, obviously the, the starting 15, if you make three or four substitutions, whatever, you look at the collective group. In this instance, you're just nitpicking on me. And that was really the moment then that I started to think like, I wasn't then bothered what people said on social media. Um, you know, so I, I stayed on it, but I know it has deeply affected other people, um, like other footballers and has affected their performances. John Duggan and David Myler from Off The Ball. Colm, Dr. Tedros also mentioned the HIV epidemic there um, and I was watching It's a Sin during the week. I know you were watching it too. I saw mm-hmm. some of your tweets. I It, it had a massive impact on me. I feel, I feel I will watch it again. Um, I thought it was, you know, just so well done, so well cast. Um, it's devastating. Um, but I suppose uh, I wanted to just get your take on it in terms of, I guess it, it will be, a lot of people will learn from it because I think um, something that didn't, it's not that long ago that that happened, but, you know, for some people they don't remember that that was the situation with HIV um, you know and it's it's such recent history I guess. Yeah I mean I was I was 17 when I left Wexford moved to Dublin and um, came out and that was in 1984 uh, and that was just at the beginning of the AIDS crisis and it was around the time that AIDS for, or HIV or HLTB3 as it was called at the time began to be talked about first and when I say talked about uh, only in the gay community, because frankly, as, as we saw on It's a Sin, and it portrays that brilliantly, nobody else really cared. This wasn't something that that that, that uh, governments or, or even public health officials were particularly concerned about, because it was affecting um, only very small groups of people. It was described as, as gay cancer, as a gay cancer. It was seen as a disease that would only affect gay people, and therefore it, it wasn't particularly concerned. There was this kind of sense out there that if you got it, you deserved it, because, you know, you were deviant. Um, and, and nobody cared. And for those of us who were who were um, living in the middle of that community, then it was it, it was fairly terrifying. I can remember working briefly in a in a hair salon out in in, in Kulak. I was working on the reception desk there, and, and there was myself. There was one other gay guy who was working in the salon, and I, and I can remember um, some of the staff in the salon. And this was agreed with the manager, insisting that they um, wouldn't use any coffee cup that we had used because we were gay, and therefore they could get AIDS from the coffee cup. And you know, all of these years later, people find that kind of shocking and disturbing. But that was just how it was at the time. Uh, and if what you were gay, year was you were, that, column? 
that would have been in AC. Okay. And, and again, yeah. like a, a coffee cup, um, you know, not to anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a sin, but there is a, a scene about a coffee yeah. cup in, in a shared, uh, a, a rented house um, among this group of young people. And like that must have hit home. Yeah, it did when I saw it. I remembered it then, but there's so much more. I mean, that, that's a, frankly, that was a minor part of it all, the, the, the stigma of it all and, and the sense of a community that was just completely ignored and left to deal with what was just a huge a threat to everybody's lives. I mean, to put this in context, I was convinced for most of my um, um, early 20s and right through my 20s that I wouldn't live to 30 because nobody was. You know, we buried so many people. Uh, we buried so many friends um, and, uh, in our 20s and 30s. It was, it was extraordinary because at that time, of course, HIV was a death sentence. If you, if you, if you caught HIV, if you became HIV positive, inevitably you would die within a number of years. Now that's changed and that's one of the things that we need to focus on. I think as we talk about it's a sin and HIV generally now, everything has changed because of access to, to therapeutics and treatments. And HIV is now a, a, a condition that can be treated and people lead long and healthy lives. And critically, transmission can be prevented because if, if people have access to proper medication and um, people who are HIV positive can be, become undetectable. In other words, the viral load is reduced to such a level that can't even be detected in their blood. And we now know that, that when somebody is, is, is undetectable, the disease is untransmittable. They cannot transmit the disease to anybody else. So we're in a very different place. Colm O'Gorman from News Talk Breakfast with Susan Keogh. Now, on Stuff That Changed the World this week, Simon Tierney looked at the history of the hearse. Yes, all very macabre. Cars nowadays, and indeed hearses that have petrol or diesel engines, they're quite refined. So you're not getting the billowing, smoky fumes that you get in, in old style cars. Anyone who's been to Cuba will know that the old 1950 cars, if you stand anywhere within 50 yards of them, you can hardly breathe. So people didn't <laughs> like the idea of doing a funeral procession behind a motorised hearse because of course everyone's walking behind it mm. the funeral procession and it was disgusting it was smelly got all over your clothes and it was deemed disrespectful to the dead yeah. so when they got more refined hearses became more popular but there was another key and really important thing that undertakers realised Sean and it was this that if you use a motorised hearse the whole thing is over in a jiffy. It can be a lot quicker. And therefore, yeah. you can pack more funerals into an undertaker's schedule. And therefore, it's a better business model. Absolutely. Uh, so, but, but presumably, whilst they wanted, the undertakers might have wanted to do that, they still had to solve the problem of, of stinky car fumes. Yes, yes. And they did. By the late 20s and early 30s, not only had motor cars become cheaper, um, you know, with the help of Mr. Ford and people like that, the engines had become uh, somewhat more refined. So it was more acceptable. Right, indeed. And uh, we know actually on that point, I was trying to figure out, because it's not clear to me when the first motorised hearses were being used in Ireland, but I did find an advertisement in, uh, I think it was in the Irish Independent from 1928 for Fenley's Undertakers on Dorset Street, Fenley's, I don't believe, still operates from that street, but they were advertising in that newspaper what they described as a saloon motor hearse. And that's 1928. So we know, at least from the late 1920s, they were being used in Ireland for our funerals.
Right. And did every does every car company have a, a hearse version no. or, or is it dominated? No, that's by? a good question because a lot of hearses will be dominated by uh, or will be manufactured by the likes of your Mercedes Benz. Mm. Um, Ford do a lot. Uh, Jaguar. Of course, they're beyond the more expensive end. Volvo. Um, Daimler and Rolls-Royce, you know, would have done a lot in the past, but they'd be too expensive now. In America, Cadillacs and Lincolns. Uh, would be used a lot. One of the most famous funerals, I tweeted a photograph of this earlier, was Elvis Presley's um, August the 18th, 1977. Um, I was going to say if memory serves, but I wasn't alive then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I believe it was a big affair. 30,000 people attended that funeral. But let me describe the car for you if if people aren't on Twitter, Um, Sean. It's a really extraordinary car. It is a... Uh, white Cadillac. Um, not often you see a white hearse. For me, uh, hiring a white hearse is like that one person at the wedding who's wearing a white tuxedo. Yeah, you know. Yeah, really, but it's really it, it was Elvis there. though at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a true. bit Elvisy, uh, <laughs> must be said. Uh, well, uh, one Texas says apparently the empty co- a coffin in a hearse are rarely empty. The section under where you see the coffin is where they transport the body to the undertakers for preparation. Uh, Kieran, the postie says, when my grandfather died some years ago, his body had to be brought from Dublin to Mayo for the burial. We all lost the hearse on the way down as we couldn't keep up with them. Uh, it brought some humour to a sad occasion. Uh, uh, another person says, I once pulled a Mooney. I assume that means they dropped their drawers. Going down a motorway in a hearse. It was a work party and we'd ordered a limo and a hearse limo arrived. It still brings a smile to my face. Probably not to the people who saw it from the other side. Uh, my dad is an undertaker, says Neve. He would often collect me from school in the hearse, much to people's amazement. Uh, and Craig said, I had a second-hand hearse as a work van. It was great for picking up girls and going on dates. It was a monster of a, a, a V5 Mercedes. Love that car, says Craig. And this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's extraordinary, Sean. I haven't found evidence of it in Ireland, but certainly in Britain and the US, there are plenty of hearse clubs. These are hearse enthusiasts who will meet up at weekends and they have, you know, vintage hearses. There's one particular club in the town of Hell in Michigan. Of course. Which has a very popular hearse enthusiast club called Just Hearsing Around. Wow, those guys would be so fun to hang out with. (laughs) Simon Tierney from Stuff That Changed the World. If people do feel this sense of of loneliness at the moment, well, first of all, how, how might it manifest itself? Oh, it'll manifest itself in depression. It'll manifest itself in isolation. Like if you ask a very simple question, it's not that you can't live with the world. It's that you can't live with yourself. So if you think, you know, it's difficult to live in the world out there, it's even infinitely more difficult to live with yourself when you're unable to accept yourself. So if when you're sitting on your own, notice this voice that's going on in the back of your head. Now, it's going to be incredibly vague. But it's incredibly critical. And it's always this sense of tension, this sense of foreboding, this sense of, God, I'm on my own, abandoned. You feel like you're looking in at the world, like constantly feeling on the outside, looking at the world through an imaginary barrier that you feel you can never break. That's how you will always notice it. It's not this contented feeling of having a little bit of me time. It's this intense that totally, you know, it totally grasps you. And, and there's very little you can do about it unless you know what it actually 
is causing it and how to actually overcome it. Uh, so uh, in terms of recognising what's causing yeah. it then and this inability yeah. to accept yourself, I mean, the, the short answer is, you know, accept yourself, but that's it's not that straightforward. Well, it's what are you accepting yourself as? Because we live okay. in a world that in order to be acceptable, I must be X, I must be Y, I must achieve this and I must achieve that. And, you know, and when I was trying to describe this years ago, I used a, an analogy and anybody who's in their, their kind of 50s would remember a cartoon called the Raggy Dolls back in the 1990s. And it was about all these toys in the reject bit. So the, the cure for loneliness is at a deep roast emotional level is learning how to accept yourself warts and all. And how you do that is, is that there's, you know, you become a member of what I used to call the Raggy Dog Club. One is you're not perfect. You never wear, but neither is anybody else. Two, that, you, you know, you regularly screw up, you regularly make mistakes, but so does everybody else. Three, you can't be measured by your screw ups because there's no measuring tool. And four, you don't have to accept anybody's opinion of you because their opinion of you is no more valid than your opinion of them. Now, when you get to that point whereby you're able to accept yourself, you do start to belong and feel you belong to other people because you see them as being raggy dolls as well. Mm. So when you go in, you, get, you, you, know, you don't have to be in a group, but you can actually feel that you're OK with yourself. Now, when you start working on that, you, you know, if you like elderly men, it's very, very common. Join yeah. something like the men's shed. If you're a lady, join the Irish Country Women's Association. Join the GAA. There's loads of activities out there. But you will have to change how you view yourself, but also change how you're viewing others. Because the more negative you view yourself, the more positive you're going to feel other people. And it's a bit like kind of two boats sitting on a lake. You know, they gradually drift more and more and more away from each other so that you can't actually, you can't, you know, relate to anything that you're actually seeing out there yourself. So now, I've, do, sorry, you have to, do you have to, are you saying you have to start recognising faults in other people and recognising that they have warts and all? Well, see, that's what you do. You know, like kind of, you know, I'm sitting here talking to Kieran on the radio. Like, who's to say that you make more mistakes than I do or whatever, or that you can be measured by mistakes? Oh, I can assure you, know, you I a... make more mistakes than you do. <laughs> yeah. Come on. You don't. You're an ordinary Joe Soap, the exact same as myself, struggling to do the best you can with the tools you have. And if you actually recognise that in other people, you feel that sense of belonging that you're, you're kind of similar to, to other people. Remember, the loneliness occurs is that if you rate yourself negatively, the boat is drifting away one direction. As you rate yourself negatively, you only see what's wrong with you. Then the boat that you see other people is, the more negative you see yourself, the more you see them as being successful. So you see them, them as being something that you're not, and you can never reach out and actually be there. Kieran Cuddihy there, from The Hard Shoulder.
As heard on the Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. A couple of texts here. It's just a vaccine. We're vaccinated as children repeatedly, and that won't stop. Yet again, our selfish, comfortable first world privilege is overriding common sense. Just have the vaccine, forget about it, and allow us to move on out of this pandemic. Do the selfish people refusing the vaccine realise we cannot continue to live like this much longer? Grow up, people, and take the vaccine. On the other hand, this one says, I really don't think it's morally right to force people, even medical staff, to take something into their bodies that they're not comfortable with or have concerns about. And certainly there's no way that kids should be forced to take vaccines. They do, they do all the time. Um, Not this one, but they do take vaccines all the time. I think curfews and isolating in hotels, etc. are all legitimate rules and I have no issue with those. The point we're all making is if you're refusing the vaccine, should be a, you be allowed to look after people who are vulnerable? That's uh, the question. From the Pat Kenny Show. On Saturday, John Fardy spoke to Ryan White, the producer and director of the new documentary film Assassins for Screen Time. I think at the centre of this story is, whether you believe the women or not, at the centre of the story is, is a universal story, which is the... The use of the internet and social media um, to exploit or manipulate. Uh, and both of these women, the women are very different from one another. Um, Dwan was from Vietnam. She had spent over a decade seeking a life of fame um, as an actress or as a singer. She was on Vietnam Idol. Um, and Siti had a much harder backstory. You know, she was a single mom who had ended up in the sweatshop industry in Indonesia and then ended up in the sex work industry in Kuala Lumpur and was constantly seeking a better life and better paycheck to send money back to her family and son um, home in Indonesia. And so these men who claimed to be Japanese YouTube producers and ended up being North Korean spies preyed on those vulnerabilities um, in recruiting these two women. And we know now these weren't the only two women that were groomed. There were other women um, over the course of this year who also were recruited um, and were a part of this alleged prank show. Um, but for whatever reason, Dwan and Siti are the two that made it to the end um, mm-hmm. and are the ones whose final prank was, was a fatal one. Um, yeah. So, you know, it is, you know, true crime is a very interesting genre right now because it's very popular um, in the world of documentary, but 
in this story, we were always very careful to not get too lost in the spectacle because it is a spectacle and it is very entertaining. Um, you know, it is what whatever the, the Kim regime orchestrated was orchestrated in a way that was supposed to be so surreal and bizarre. But there's a real victim at the center, which is Kim Jong-nam. He died and there was never any accountability or justice for that. And if you believe the women, there's two other victims who, who were facing their facing this the penalty of their lives as well. Um, mm. And so we were constantly reminding ourselves through the making of the film to not get lost in the spectacle that the central thrust of our film was discovering who these women are, despite all the sensational headlines of these you know, femme fatale bond women really figure out who they are and what led them to this moment in that airport. What an interesting story. Assassin's director Ryan White from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune in to John every Saturday evening from six till seven. On Sunday, Talking History explored the life and legacy of the great Sylvia Pankhurst. Here's Patrick Gagan and Rachel Holmes. To a certain extent, she was in the shadow of her famous mother, Emmeline Pankhurst. Uh, but growing up in this famous activist family, I suppose from the beginning, she, she was this natural born rebel, as your subtitle suggests. It was absolutely in her DNA. And as you say, she did come from one of Britain's most radical uh, activist families. And it was her father as well, Richard Pankhurst, the uh, the, the barrister, uh, and uh, re- you know, Republican, anti-monarchist and socialist who was very inspiring of both Emmeline Pankhurst, Sylvia's mother, who became the leader of the movement, or the Women's Social and Political Union, which was called the Family Party. And yes, there was Mama Emmeline, and then there was uh, Sylvia was the second sister born in 1882 in Manchester, and her elder sister was Christabel, who became... The, the sort of general, if you like, the sort of brains and, and commander leader of, of the Women's Social and Political Union. And then there was the younger sister, Adela, who tried to get a look in when she could, but also was an activist. And Harry, um, the brother, who was <clears throat> also fought um, very actively, uh, you know, chalking pavements and heckling liberal politicians. Unfortunately, he, he died. But there was uh, no doubt that at the time in in the sort of hierarchy of how it worked that that Emmeline was very much um the the dominant figure and Christabel but I do think there's something really interesting there Patrick which is there's something about history I mean you know we're talking history here I think at the time as Sylvia emerged from the shadows of her mother and her sister which was over the over political differences not the least over Irish politics, I have to tell you, but also the First World War, because that was what they really fell out of, over in the end, that Sylvia emerged as a, as a very well-known figure in her own right um, on the left of the movement, moving to, to East London and setting up the East London Federation of Suffragettes and had a very prominent uh, political uh, career and figure as an activist. And I think what happened is that maybe over, that history also sort of put her back in the shadows because I think history remembered Emmeline and Christabel a bit more, not the least because they were a bit more, how can I put it, they became quite right wing, they became conservative and they sort of occupied that side of history, whereas Sylvia was the anti-racist, the anti-imperialist. And um, and I think that there's a combination of things that, so in a nutshell, I think she was probably better known during her lifetime than she has been remembered 
historically since, but hopefully we can uh, make some amends for that now. Some fascinating insights there from historian and author Rachel Holmes from Talking History with Patrick Egan. And of course, you can tune into Patrick every Sunday evening from 7 till 8. Okay, given the weekend that's in it, I'm going to leave you now on a romantic note, or maybe not. Here's Henry McKean. Have a great weekend. It was an attempt. I think the big thing was to get back to my group of girlfriends as soon as possible. You kissed them and you liked it? Absolutely. I think it was a rite of passage. (laughs) It was in the early days of texting, so we were texting and then we met and we kissed. Who was your first kiss? My mummy and my daddy. Shifting each other after school, you know what I mean? So it was more than one kiss. When you say shifting each other, you mean lots of snogging? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, I was in girl talked, and yeah, about 12, 13. You still know I mean, the boy? Yeah, I still know the guy. Like, friends. Just friends? Yeah, no, just very much so just friends. And did you fancy him? Yeah, at the time, like, you think, you think you're great, like, but... And uh, not now? No. No, no, he's great, but he's great, but just friends, like... And was he a good kisser? Were you a good kisser? I'd say no. It was fairly awful, to be honest. So if he's a bad kisser, you're like, oh, this is not going to last. I'll make him improve, probably. <laughs> Tell me about your first kiss. Uh, it was with my next-door neighbour. We were both similar in age growing up, and I think once we got to the age of, I think it was about 10 or 11, we were kind of sitting around watching a movie, and we, I think we saw a kiss on the movie, and we were just kind of like, oh, should we? And he was like, oh, I dare you. Kissing is two people coming together. So if someone's going too fast, you can slow it down. If someone's going too slow, you can kind of quicken it up. Obviously, if there's a lot, if it's a lot of wet kissing and tongues involved, you can kind of close your mouth. Or you can be bluntly honest and just say, hey, <laughs> let's work on this. And if, if you're a couple who's confident and comfortable with each other, I don't see a problem with that. Because to me, kissing is so important in a relationship that if that's not there, it can really kind of impact on the relationship. It's the integral part of a relationship. Before you do anything else, you always kiss. So that's the way for you to know if this is this person is for you or not. If you get those butterfly feelings, if you, you feel like you want to see this person again, or if you don't. Like, I've been in a situation where I really, really fancied this guy and went out on a date, and I was like, oh, God, what do I wear? First date nerves and everything. And then towards the end, he leaned in for a kiss, and there was absolutely nothing. And I just said to myself, oh okay this wasn't what I expected like physically he was exactly my type I was really into him looks wise but there was just there was no chemistry no chemistry and then for me then it just wasn't a point in in having a second date because if there's nothing there uh, it's very hard to to move forward with that relationship whereas if I know what my my partner I'm with now um, I was really into him and he took a while it was three dates before we kissed and then when we finally did I realised yeah this is this is the guy I want to be with In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.